feel like the last year and a half have felt, certainly for me, as, as maybe the most uncertain period that I've lived through, at least in my own life. Uh, we have seen the world locked down, airports, borders closed, sports leagues completely stopped, and it has felt, it does feel, I think uniquely, as if the world is shaky, as if the world is uncertain, not unique to our time, of course. This has been the case at different times throughout human history. Just a quick survey of human history would reveal to us that there's been periods of famines and plagues, and wars and crimes. All of it has made life uncertain. Maybe this last week you've lost your keys or you've had a dead car. Those hit close to home. Those make life uncertain. When societies often feel uncertain, that's when strong men often arise. They can take advantage of the situation, seize on it, and provide a certain way forward, and they win a following that way. I think all of us would say we long for more certainty in the world about our lives, about the future. And the certainty that we want, we often look to find in the wrong places. The world would tell us to look from within. The scriptures would tell us to look without, to the triune God who is and whose work and whose plans are certain. This morning, we come to a, the end of Revelation, of Revelation, this book that means to give us certainty in an uncertain world. And in coming to the end of this book, we come to the end of the entire Bible. We've been in this book in and out since last October. These are the final words this morning of not just this book, but the book of all of Scripture. What have we seen as we've looked at this book? We've seen God's unstoppable, certain plans for history, for the church, the certainty that he will save an innumerable people from across the world, God's certain victory over Satan and all of his purposes. And why has the risen Christ revealed this book to us? That we might live with a certain faith in this world. This morning we come to the end, the epilogue of this book, Revelation 22, 6 through 21. If you're new to the Bible, this is a great day to jump in. Just turn to the last page. This is the very last verses of this entire story. Let's read it now. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Here's the main point of these last words of Scripture. Christ, his message, his coming, his salvation and judgment are certain. Christ, his message, his coming, his salvation and judgment are certain. So trust him. Trust him. That's how we're meant to leave this glorious book. Not confused. Certain. And we will see the certainties we're meant to have as we walk through this chapter together. Let's begin first by seeing the certainty of the message. The certainty of the message. wonder how many times that you've heard some news or a story and you weren't sure whether you should believe it. One of the ways that if you're like me, you determine whether you will believe it is you ask, who told you that? Who told you that can determine whether the information is credible or not. The very end of this book, Christ Jesus wants us to be certain of this message. And he shows us again by telling us who this message has come from. Look at the very beginning of this conclusion. Verse 6, the angel declares, these words are trustworthy and true. And then notice we can be confident they come from an authoritative source. The Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, sent his angels. And then down there at verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Way back in chapter 1, verse 1, we learned that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave his book, this book, to his servants, and he made it known by sending his angel to John. This is divinely given. And more than that, it's been carefully transmitted. Jesus sent his angel. Transmission is not a two-way activity. It's a one-way activity. 
Two years ago, the movie 1917 was released. And the movie tells the story of a young corporal in the British Army, Tom Blake, who's ordered by his general to carry a message, an urgent message, to a colonel further ahead in the battle as that colonel was prepared to attack the German army. The telephone lines had been cut and intelligence had revealed that the Germans were acting as if they were retreating so that the British would attack only to overwhelm them as they did so. The message had to be delivered by the next morning. And the message was to call off the attack. It was signed and it was verified by the general itself. The, the mission to transmit the message was of great risk to this young corporal. He barely survived. But by faithfully delivering this message, he saved thousands of lives. And both the source and the transmission of the message mattered. And the colonel to whom the message was delivered, he was forced to make a massive decision in light of it, whether to believe it or not. It's the same here. The risen Christ gives us this book. Through the angel, 4 verse 16, the churches. It's not a private message. It's a public one for the church of all ages. And why? Verse 6, to show his servants what must take place. This is a message for the blessing, not the fear of the church. It has been given to us that we might be certain, not that history is out of control, but that it is all under God's control. And Christ Jesus means for us, the church, to see we can be certain of this message. It comes from him through his mighty angel. And what's more, verse 8, John tells us he heard and he saw these things. The revelation comes through personal eyewitness testimony. This exiled apostle on Patmos who suffered for the message testifies to us of the truthfulness of the message. So this book, in which we have seen the certainty of Christ's present reign, of his defeat of the dragon, of his salvation of the church, of the fact that he will gather a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and language. This book has come to us from God through Christ, through the angel, through John, who, like the prophets, wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, and now it's come to you and to me. And so as we've looked at this book, each of us must ask ourselves, what is more certain? what I think about the world or what the scriptures reveal to be true about the world. Your doubts or the book. The message of this book is that Christ reigns, Christ holds the keys of death and Hades, that not one of his people will be lost, not one part of his plan will fail to come to pass. You're meant to see the certainty of this message but you're not meant to stop there. You're meant to live your life in light of what this reveals. If that colonel had not believed Corporal, 
corporate Thomas Blake, many lives would have been lost. The message was certain, and so because of that, he had to take actual steps in his life in light of it. So must you. The certainty of this message must mean big things for your life, for your own faith, for your witness. Friends, there's ultimately no government, there's no person, there's no one but Christ who rules these days. This book has taken us behind the scenes. It has shown us the true story. And so it frees us to live in confident faith in a way that will not make sense in this present world, but will make sense when this present world comes to its end. Believe this message and live in light of this message. Hold faithfully to and hold out the gospel. Keep fighting sin. Love the church. Obey Christ. Let him be your treasure. And because of the certainty and the truthfulness of this message, verse 18 and 19, don't add to and don't take away from it. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues, the punishments. And if anyone takes away or subtracts, God will take away his share of the tree of life and to the holy city. Addition to the word, subtraction from the word are both wrong. Isn't that what the serpent did in the garden? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He added to the word of God. And ultimately, he contradicted. He lied about God's word completely. You shall not surely die. And for their own part, Adam and Eve didn't know or believe God's word enough to live in light of it. And so they lost access to the tree of life. And we have lived in this cursed, plagued world ever since. Brothers and sisters, you have to choose whose word you will believe in your life and live in light of that. We are now descended from parents who chose the word of a snake over the word of God. And I wonder what word it is that tempted you this last week. The word of this world, the word of your own doubts, the word of social media. We are inundated with words in this world. Whose word do you trust? Whose word are you storing up in your own heart and mind? That's how you'll determine the answer to whose word you trust. Look at the words you spend the most time thinking about. What you do with this message, this book, is of eternal consequence. And this world constantly feeds you with the word that someone else is on the throne. Do not believe the lie of the serpent. He continues to whisper, did God really say certainty of the message of this book means you can trust it and you can confidently give your life away in light of it it means you do not have to live for what the world is living for 
And it does mean the day is coming when your life that has seemed so foolish to this world will prove to have been eternally wise. Press on, persevere. The message is certain. The lamb wins. The certainty of the message. Secondly, the certainty of Christ. The certainty of Christ. For whatever you may not understand or not be clear about in this book, and I hope it's a lot less at this point, I hope you know you can bank your life and your eternity on Christ. The whole book begins with Christ declaring, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And in the end, the risen Christ speaks again. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Don't let that speed by you. How authoritative, how very much on the throne the Savior is. He's eternal. Time is just one more thing he's created. He will judge and he will outlast when the world is over. The times, your times are in his nail-pierced hands being taken directly where he would have them. And he is the Messiah who has lowered himself to come into time to redeem. End of verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. He is David's origin. He's King David's cause. He is King David's ultimate descendant. He is the bright morning star. It's an echo from Numbers 24 when there was foretold a royal figure, a star would come out of Jacob. He is the one who will bring in a new and eternal day. In his own voice, the risen Christ tells us who he is. Uncertain days are no match for the certain Savior. Consider what we've seen of Christ throughout this book. Chapter 5, great throne room scene. No one in all of the universe was found worthy to take the scroll, break its seals, but Christ was. The lion who is the lamb, Christ broke the seals. He alone was qualified to rule over and unfold his plans for history, to rule over the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Entire book until its very end is meant to convince you of the present reign and authority of Christ and his ultimate victory over every enemy. I lament personally that this majestic book that was given to encourage what would have been small, struggling, weak churches has somehow caused more speculation than it has encouragement. That it's the book that so many Christians might stay away from. Christ bids us to come. He is the first and the last 
word. He means for us to know that our world is not out of control, but under his control. And how easy it can be for Christians to confess that Christ reigns, but then to live as if he doesn't. How do you do that? One obvious way is by prayerlessness. How many times have we seen in the book of Revelation that because Christ reigns, the prayers of the saints matter and are indispensable to his purposes? And then how many times this last week did you struggle in your prayer life? I did. This is not to guilt you to pray. This is to transform or to give you sight to see the reality of the universe that not only is Christ on the throne, but because of that, our prayer lives are cosmically important. And if this book reveals to us that Christ is on the throne and that there's a real spiritual enemy and battle taking place and that prayer matters, does it not surprise any of us? Every day there's a battle not to pray to do something else. The certainty of Christ means that there's a certain effectiveness in your prayers for you who have trusted in Christ. Our prayer lives or the lack of our prayer lives reveal obviously who we think is on the throne, who is in control. Let the supremacy and the authority of Christ drive you to pray next week. And what about your fears? what you've worried about. How does that stack up against the certainty of Christ? If you're a Christian, you're not helpless before your worries and your fears. The risen Christ has revealed himself to us. He's giving us substance so we can fight fear and worry. So we're confident that there's more than meets the eye in this world. And what about what you worship? Once again in John, in verse 8, John falls down to worship the angel who transmits the message. And in verse 9, he's then again rebuked when the angel says, don't do that. I, I'm a fellow servant with you and the prophets. Worship God alone. So in this whole book, the supremacy and the certainty of Christ is seen in this fact. Only God, the Father, and Christ are shown worthy to receive worship. And the angelic hosts in heaven are not confused about who deserves worship. How tragic that this world of men are so utterly confused about who to worship. This world is constantly telling us and tempting us to worship that which is not worthy, to sacrifice our lives for it. Oh, let this readjust your sight. Let this angel readjust for you, the supremacy and the glory of Christ on the throne. Let this readjust the way you're thinking about your life right now. You are where you are. Your circumstances are what they are because Christ is on the throne, not because he's absent. And one day, that final day of eternity, everything that has been hard and confusing because Christ is on the throne will be undone and will be okay. All of it, all of it will lead you to worship Christ. Worship Christ now in faith. 
He is the sure and the steady anchor in the storm. The certainty of Christ. Third, the certainty of salvation. The certainty of salvation. All right, if you step back and look at the book of Revelation, one of the big picture truths that you cannot help to miss in this book is that a great salvation has come and is coming. And it will make everything worth it. Every tear, every hardship, worth it. And that's what we see again at the very end. This book is filled with seven benedictions, seven words of blessing, and two of them come here in this conclusion. Verse seven, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's exactly what is pronounced at the very beginning of this book in the third verse. I think that this word blessing is so widely used today, flippantly used, that it's lost a lot of its, its meaning. Someone writes on Twitter, I got a new car, hashtag blessed. Thankful for my huge new house, hashtag blessed. It's this way of feigning thankfulness when you're really just bragging about something good that's happened to you or how good you are. And it's often about physical or material prosperity. This word is so different in Scripture. To be blessed biblically is to know and have favor with the true God. You could be like Job. You could lose everything in this world and be blessed because you have favor with God. Read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This world does not think about blessing the way that God thinks about blessing. Better to have nothing and be covered by the blood of Christ than to have everything and not be. Hashtag blessed. The blessing here is for the one who keeps the prophecy of the book. Keeping does not earn salvation, but it does prove whether you've been lavished by God's great salvation in Christ. What does it mean? It means that you do live in light of what is reveal here. It means you will endure patiently. You will suffer faithfully. You will witness boldly. You will trust Christ wholly. You keep the prophecy by living in light of Christ's present reign and his ultimate return. And verse 14, the final blessing of the book, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city By the gates. Do you remember the martyrs in chapter 6? So lavishly clothed in white robes. Do you remember the faithful ones of Revelation 7? Clothed in white robes. Why? They had been made white by the blood of the Lamb. All the way to the end of this book, we're meant to see how certain and secure is the salvation of Christ. Only Jesus Christ can make your robes white by his blood. And as this book ends, the gracious king of heaven and earth invites you to wash your sinful robes in his blood and be made white. Why is this world so uncertain? Why is the world so frightening? 
Because we as a human race, we as individuals have sinned and chosen to go away from and against the God who has made us, the very God who's created the world and everything in it, has chosen to send his own son into this world to redeem the world. Mysteriously, God the Son has come into the world not to conquer, but to save. And he did this by living and dying for unworthy sinners. A shameful death on the cross. And the astonishing message of this book is that eternal blessing White robes comes through Christ and his blood, his death, his resurrection, his work, not ours. Have you washed your sin in the blood of Christ and so made your robes white? Or are you trying to find your righteousness through some other and lesser path? One that will not hold when you stand before the risen Christ on the final day. Repent and come to Christ by faith. Look at what he promises at the very end of verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now that's either true or it isn't. It's really too good to be true, except it's true. Whoever you are, there is no precondition. Christ does not say clean yourself up. Just says if you're thirsty, if you desire, come, take the water of life without price. Where else in this entire world can you get your deepest desires and longings, your thirst satisfied without price. The water of life is eternal life. You were meant to know it and enjoy it. And yet we all run after water that will not satisfy. There is no water in this world that will satisfy your thirst or the thirst of the world other than this water. And it comes without price. Where have you been looking to satisfy your thirst? If you're a Christian, have you been looking to relationships? Been looking at a website? Are you constantly trying to get approval, recognition? Is it money or is it Christ? Look outside of yourself to Christ. Next week, remember Christ alone. In him is the water of life without price. And it's as you satisfy yourself in Christ that you relate to all of these other things, not as someone thirsty, but as someone whose thirst has been quenched eternally in Christ. Christ's salvation is certain. He quenches our thirst. Blessed are those who wash their robes. But what else is certain? Christ's judgment. Be very clear, verse 15, not everyone will enter the holy city. There are those outside, the dogs, unclean, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves, who loves and practices falsehood. The certainty of salvation, but also the certainty of judgment. 
We're not meant to think that just because we do not see Christ, that Christ does not see us. He sees. He says at the beginning of this book, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So we leave this book, feel the warning, feel the weight of this. If you've not come to Christ, if you're living your life immersed in a web of lies and idols, Christ sees and he knows. And listen to the risen Christ in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The risen Christ will judge. Some of you I'm well aware are here this morning and you know all too well, all too personally, the injustice and the wickedness of this world. You know it in your jobs. You know it in your lives. You know it in your countries. You know wicked men do wickedness. Hear this from King Jesus Christ. He will come and bring his recompense. He will repay. He will judge. Any sin that he has not paid for by his own blood, he will repay in his person. And brothers and sisters, this also means he will not fail to overlook your faithfulness. If he will not fail to reward even a cup of water that you've given in his name to one of his disciples, how much will he not fail to overlook your faithfulness in the world? His coming salvation will not underwhelm you. Your faithfulness will prove to be worth it. If you've not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, be warned. Christ will judge. He will repay. And brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. He will bring a certain salvation. A certain salvation. And finally, most clearly, the certainty of Christ coming. The certainty of Christ coming. This is it, isn't it? I think this is one of the craziest truths that we hold to in the world's eyes. But we believe it with our whole lives. Christ will return again, visibly, bodily, physically, unmistakably, gloriously. He will come and it will be eternally. From the very beginning of this book, the church is assured Christ is coming soon. And here again at the end, Verse 6, what must soon take place? Verse 7, I am coming soon. Look at verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. The Apostle John has the prophet Daniel in his mind as he writes this at the end of Daniel's book. The angelic messenger tells Daniel, go your way, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. They were sealed because the time of the end had not come. What do we read here in verse 10? Do not seal up the words, for the time is near. Daniel had to seal it. John is told the opposite. The time of the end has come. And that was millennia ago. Time is near. And then what did the angel tell Daniel? about sealing it up until the time of the end. The angel said, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act 
wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. What did that mean? The time of the end will be characterized by the righteous and the wicked acting in character. No matter how morally insane it gets, the wicked continue to act wickedly. What do we read here in verse 11? After John is told not to seal up the prophecy, let the evil doer still do evil, the filthy be filthy, the righteous do right, the holy be holy. This is not the angel giving permission for evil. This is the angel saying, what will be, will be. Just as the angel told Daniel, the righteous and the wicked will act in accord with their character. So the wickedness of our world, rather than it being proof that Christ isn't on the throne, is proof that he is. That the world is exactly as Christ our Lord has told us it will be. As mysterious as it all is, while Christ will never do evil, He means and he uses evil for good. Look at the cross for proof that God's plans, not the wicked's, are prevailing. And so the fact that Christ is coming soon means we can be patient. We can wait. You can be certain that your trial and your struggle with sin, that evil itself has an end date. Look at verse 12. There in verse 12 that the risen Christ himself speaks. And what is the first truth he declares? Behold, I am coming soon. Our Lord wants us to know and be sure he's coming. It's that reality that does cause our lives to look foolish in this world that has such different hopes and such different expectations. What will be for us the long-awaited day will be for the world Nothing but an unpleasant and unexpected interruption. You know what it is, especially here, to prepare for someone to to come visit you. My mother, like so many mothers, always do so much to prepare for when we come home, to make everything ready. The anticipation, planning, all of it, and it's just for me, and I know that I underwhelm. I don't live up to the anticipation. Christ's coming will not underwhelm us. When he comes, he will overwhelm us with his glory. And so the certainty of his coming means that we don't have to get everything out of this life. We can wait and prepare for his coming visitation. And let me assure you that every preparation you've made in your life Every risk you've taken will be worth it. I know that the world tells us otherwise, but the book says he's coming and it will be soon. And we pray for it. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Is that your yearning for Christ to come? The yearning of your heart for Christ to come and usher in his glory in the new world or do you want to live in this world on its terms will Jesus interrupt your plans or will the coming of Jesus be the fulfillment the expectation the glory the goal of your plans ask the Lord to recalibrate and change your heart in view of his coming 
For those of you that are suffering this morning and this time in your life, ask the Lord to give you patience. Ask King Jesus to help you trust him, to savor his promises until all of them are fulfilled. When he comes, he's going to make everything right. What a joy to see so many of your faces who are living and have lived sacrificially in view of his coming. I hope this is like rocket fuel that spurs you on in your faithfulness. Your life will not be foolish. Anticipate his coming. As we come to the end of this book, it's my prayer that you leave this book with certainty that Christ is on the throne, that this world is unfolding according to his plan, that the day will come when our praying will be over, when the church militant, the church penitent becomes the church triumphant, when all that we've seen by faith will be seen visibly with sight. The day is coming. Be certain of it. There's not one risk. There's not one cost that you've counted. There's nothing that you've left behind. There's no sin that you've forsaken and killed that you will regret when Christ appears and you see him visibly as he is. This book is not meant to confuse you. This book is meant to make you certain such that when you hear the voice of the Savior who testifies to these things saying, surely I am coming soon, you will respond with the church through all the ages saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This book is not for our speculation. It's meant to make us filled with expectation. Not fear, but faith. Not sorrow, but joy. Christ has triumph. He holds the keys He's actively, powerfully working to bring all things under his feet until the ends of the earth become his possession. And you who have drunk and have been satisfied from the water of life, go and live in the joy of your all-satisfying salvation. Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming. These words are trustworthy and true. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Lord, we praise you for the certain authority, reign, and coming of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we have read and studied this book, that we would keep the prophecy of this book until the day when he returns visibly. And we pray this in his name, confident that you who have begun the work will complete it. In Jesus' name, amen.